This is the Planning Ideas That Matter podcast. I'm Takeo Kuwabara. And I'm Dave Lashansky. If you're listening to this show, we're hoping you have been following our conversations from the beginning. Where Professor Larry Suskind launched our conversation on big data and urban analytics, robotization and urban economies, and the philosophical and political spheres that encompass urban planning. Over the course of nine episodes, this series has profiled faculty members of the Department of Urban Studies and Planning at MIT, highlighting their views on urban planning and the field's current environment, challenges, and its evolution. In our next episodes, we'll wrap up this series with interviews and discussions that encapsulate general themes we've been discussing. What you'll hear in these next episodes is not going to be a definitive answer about the best route forward for planning. We wouldn't presume to even conjecture there. No but rather a set of interviews that weave together some of the insights we've garnered from our conversations and some of the threads that we've observed throughout. Here to speak with us for this episode is Professor Gabriella Carolini. I am an assistant professor of international development and urban planning in the Department of Urban Studies and Planning at MIT. Over the course of our conversation with Gabriella, we started to notice threads that were woven throughout our series. One of those threads is the key distinction between the theory and the practice of planning. So it's a process of envisioning that which we want and trying to implement it. So it's really about implementation. There's a lot of literature that I think feeds into planning. So everything from geography and sociology to economics and political science. And I think of urban planning as, at least as a discipline, and we can talk also about planning as a practice, but as a discipline within the academic realm is taking all of those fields of knowledge and trying to think about how do they translate into practice within urban spaces. But there are certainly tensions because the, the theoretical part or academic part, you know, the, the idea of the armchair warrior remains, I think, an image of the academic in the, in the field of practice. And the truth is really that as academics or researchers, you have the luxury of thought, you have the luxury of experimentation and the luxury of choosing what are the important questions. And in practice, that luxury is kind of skimmed away from you and you're really hit with immediate immediate tasks and planning for the future, but everything is quite demanding and the time for reflection can be rather hard. There have been efforts along the way to better adjoin practice and theory and the best theories come out of practice. Best practices come out of theory, so it's a symbiotic relationship. And though drawing the distinction is important, as Gabriella has outlined for us here, we wanted to know more about when the two processes merge. When theory becomes practice. Probably the clearest thing that comes to mind in the most recent sort of phenomenon is really theories of deliberative democracy and participation as being one of the ways in which to foster the more holistic meaning of development. And that theory has been applied to something as technical sounding as budgeting. <laughs> and so um, the idea of participatory budgeting, of course, came out of Porta Alegre, Brazil, or the, I think Belo Horizonte might claim uh, also some origins in, in that experiment. But you know, that's an idea that has traveled globally. There's participatory budgeting here in Cambridge. There's participatory budgeting in China. Of course, the, the implementation is rather different across different places. And Many folks, including myself, have written about that translation and the challenges and opportunities of, of using that exercise. But that is an example of where we see theory and practice informing each other. 
And she's talking from experience. This notion and use of participatory budgeting is something Gabriela is quite familiar with. In some places, including places where I've worked, in particular in, in Maputo and Mozambique, participatory budgeting was launched in 2008 at a time where there was a, an election going on. And so everyone was very keen on participatory budgeting and it landed in Maputo. And, um, and it's gone through many different iterations. And I think one of the challenges of seeing it hit the ground has been that there aren't necessarily all of the institutions locally ready to absorb what that exercise might mean. And Mozambique is not a dictatorship, but it's not the most perfect democracy. I'm not sure many places are, so it's not to fault them entirely, but it's rather run by one political party. And that power resonates throughout the country and clearly has influence on even something that's a quote-unquote participatory budget. And there, to a certain extent, I think it's been used as a precursor or something to initiate reforms as opposed to being a product of deeper institutional reforms. And the same place where this participatory budget was launched, there was at the same time planning for a whole new redevelopment of the city uh, or extension of the city really to the south of Maputo City core and the planning for, for this wonderful new development is not really aimed at the people who currently live there. The people who currently live there were using the participatory budget to vote for things like wells, new, new wells or a paved road. And at the same time, the national government through its development agency was planning for the same exact place for you know, luxury apartment type development. And so that it can be a little bit of a red herring or a distraction in terms of deeper democratic reforms when participatory budgeting is introduced a little bit too early in a process. Across multiple aspects of the disciplines that form urban planning, there is a reoccurring need to be reflective and cautious about introducing new policies, plans, or technologies. Because even with the best information and localized contextual knowledge, the actual introduction of these elements can be leading to impacts we've not yet considered. So given all of this, should we be cautious even of seemingly incontrovertibly positive interventions? Like ideas about the ways of using big data that might dramatically improve the quality of life in urban environments? But does that mean we remain static, forever afraid of causing more harm than good? So who's going to say no to participation? Ah, participation. With respect for local, specific context. With an understanding of the power dynamics in a given place. In looking at the questions planners are asking. And how those are changing their interventions. I would say, what I say to my doctoral students, the question comes first. The methods should match the question, as opposed to saying, I'm a genius at econometrics, or I'm a genius at doing ethnographic research, or I'm a genius at spatial analysis. That's great. <laughs> um, and it's all good, and we want to harness those skills, but we want to harness those skills for, for moments that are appropriate. Um, in other words, if the question matches the methods, then that's useful. But if it's just foregrounding the methods and putting the question in the background, then I think we hit up problems. So it sounds like we're not being told to avoid interventions. That sounds like a good thing. But the question remains, how do these decisions about moving forward with 
the use of big data, for example, get made. What much of urban science has allowed us to do is to think of new ways of answering a question. So it, it opens up yet another door, which is never a bad thing in terms of being a researcher. <laughs> but I think, again, that every methodology has its weaknesses and its strengths. But for me, the big concern when I'm designing a research project is to say, what's going to be helpful? Is the method actually speaking to the question? So, for example, on a, another project I have working with the African Property Tax Initiative, we are trying to create big data that's accessible to everyone by looking at the growth in high-rise buildings across Addis Ababa and Ethiopia over the past 10 years. And we're mapping that and we're trying to identify what are hotspots of construction as a mechanism for helping to plan for the increase of own source revenues, or i.e. property tax. But if you say property tax, nobody likes that. <laughs> so, so how do we leverage some of the growth that's happening across sub-Saharan African capitals in terms of real estate development towards improving infrastructure for everyone in a city? So that's, that's the question. And what some of the big data that we're trying to create is doing is allowing us to visualize and identify. We know that we know that growth is happening, but it allows us to identify where it's happening and to think of new ways of representing that growth and thinking about, well, what does this mean for spatial planning throughout the city? So these tools, the same tools that have been problematized for us by many of our previous guests. Tools like big data and a lot of the facets of what we've been calling urban science are really important to urban planners seeking to enact ethical interventions. And it is this code of ethics that makes urban planners so deeply important in planning processes. The ethical question that comes along whenever we have a new method or technology is, you know, let's take a moment to be reflective and think about, yes, this can be a useful tool, but let us be very mindful about the context in which or the, the questions in which this is actually a useful tool and to be cognizant of the fact that just because it's the sort of new thing to go to, it doesn't mean that it's a silver bullet. The fear, of course, is that we lean on the data as some sort of proxy for the quote-unquote truth. And what we know about data in any form is that it's very subjective <laughs> and is very dependent on the modes in which it was gathered, the context in which it was gathered. So within my world of research, you know, we, we put a premium on contextual knowledge. But ethics is not necessarily simply contextual. Um, ethics is one of the things that I think every professional association has a code of ethics. Now, whether or not everyone is constantly reading it is another question. But we have, we, we do pay a lot of attention to ethics. So the idea of planning, again, is very aspirational. And at least in our department, and I'm sure in, in many others, that aspiration is about equity. It's about justice. And what is the best city that we can envision living in and how do we arrive there and 
you know, the process is as important as the quote unquote product <laughs> for planners. And so ethics is at the core of what we do, but I would say it's, it's contextually informed, but it's not contextually specific. I think it's something that comes out of the profession about consensus of planning practice and, and planning research. So let's go back for a second to Gabriella's example from the beginning of the episode about implementing participatory budgeting in Maputo. She talked about how the process was introduced too early, before the necessary democratic reforms could be made. She also offered some guidance for what was really needed from planners on the ground, and even connected back to our talk about the inevitable presence of big data and urban science in planners' work nowadays. There's a lot of patience that's required in terms of building up the institutional infrastructure that will allow for participation to really fully become participative. <laughs> and I think the same really applies with, with urban science. And again, the, the challenge is to sort of calm down and be reflective about the excitement and to think about what else is required. So this is just one of the ways in which we can help answer a question or help address a challenge. But what is the rest of the infrastructure or architecture around a particular challenge that is needed beyond simply the big data component, which is helpful, but is not sufficient, potentially. The excitement about big data is that it's just in real time and you're just constantly growing, and that's wonderful, but that doesn't speak to the more patient institutional processes that are also required and are not necessarily happening as quickly. Much of what Gabriella spoke about pointed to looking at the whole picture. Which, in many cases, really means looking for what sometimes can't be seen. My own research, and I think many folks within our department, are really interested in what we would call folks at the margins and not so much the aggregate. So my concern would be that you know, the picture, the quote-unquote picture of the collective is going to be the average picture. I'm not really interested in just the average picture. I want to know who's at the tails. I want to know about marginalization. And if big data can help me look particularly at marginalization, great. But much of research that relies on big data is excited about the opportunity that such data provides to sort of perfect the model. But the model is really based on the aggregate picture. <laughs> and again, you know, the aggregate picture, it's helpful for some questions. Uh, so I, I wouldn't take that away from the opportunity that such big data provides. But when you're interested in the margins and when you're interested in the one-offs or the folks who are not very well captured in the idea of the average collective, then that poses a challenge to a reliance on that methodology to address some challenges that are very specific to marginalized groups. And in many places, marginalized groups are actually the majority, but they're not part of a formalized system that might be using the mechanisms which feed into big data. It's nice to think that one can learn from afar and, that's, and that is sufficient. I think you need to do a lot of work at your own computer, of course, first before going into the quote-unquote field, but there's really nothing that replaces the experience of being in situ and understanding, living, working with folks who are facing a particular challenge. Now, that challenge might be in your backyard or in the neighborhood next door, or it might be you know, 6,000 miles away, 
but you have to have your feet on the ground. And in other languages, there are terms for folks who are doing work you know, from the veranda, as a famous anthropologist a hundred years ago said. <laughs> and the idiom is about getting your white shoes dirty <laughs> and really hitting the pavement, so to speak, and the importance of that as both a learning mechanism for yourself, but also as a way to build a relationship, which is also central to effective planning. You can't model everything from your computer. You, you do need to engage with a very messy reality that is out there. Thank you to Gabriella Carolini and the Department of Urban Studies and Planning. We hope you enjoyed what you heard. Be sure to check back for our final episode featuring another faculty member from the Department of Urban Studies and Planning. Thanks so much for listening.